you know, Walter Winchell coined the term frenemy at about uh, the time that these guys were really beginning to kind of get going as friends and enemies circa 1950. And I think the term frenemy describes their relationship very well because they had a creative bond. They had an antipathy personally and professionally, I think. They had this whole mix of feelings about one another, which um, led to them to some degree influence one another and certainly made the architectural dialogue of, of the time that they shared, most especially the 1950s, but also the 30s and 40s, ever so much more interesting. Hello and welcome to Archonic Sessions One to One. I'm Amelia, and this week I'm speaking with architecture writer and historian Hugh Howard. Howard has written many books on American architecture, telling stories that meld design and cultural history together in highly accessible and humanistic ways. His latest book, Architecture's Odd Couple, Frank Lloyd Wright and Philip Johnson, tracks the fruitful and contentious relationship between the two architectural frenemies, beginning with Wright's role in Johnson's pivotal Modern Architecture exhibition at MoMA in 1932, up until Wright's death in 1959. Through their relationship, Howard provides an excellent overview of mid-century architecture in the United States and personalizes the architectural giants in the process. So, Hugh Howard, thank you so much for joining us on One to One this week. Your book, The Architecture's Odd Couple, Frank Lloyd Wright and Philip Johnson, I wanted to first ask you about specifically your experience with Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture, because before we kind of get into the particular interpersonal, inter interprofessional relationship between these two architectural greats, I'd like to hear a little bit about your own background experiencing these architects' own work, and in particular, starting with Wright. Well, I guess the first Frank Lloyd Wright house I ever saw, I kind of started at the top, I guess, was uh, was the Dana Thomas house in Illinois, in Springfield, Illinois, followed quickly by Falling Water. Um, at the time, I was working on a television show that A&E broadcast, and I got to spend some long days together with the film crew at both of those places, which were extraordinary, because I think houses are best experienced when you can see the sunrise and see the sunset and see what happens in between. So I guess that began my interest in Wright. But that was 20-odd years ago, and since then I've certainly visited lots of his houses. And I've written this book, which concerns Wright and Johnson, of course. And I wrote another previous book about the houses that Frank Lloyd Wright designed for himself and for members of his family, the thinking being that you're really kind of unencumbered by the client if you're doing it for your intimates or your very self. And I think that I have developed a fairly strong feeling for what he does and uh, the character of the man, and uh, or I should say a strong set of mixed feelings about the character of the man and the gifts uh, it contained in his work. And what about Philip Johnson? Well, I came to Johnson a little bit later. In fact, I think perhaps it was my inclination to do another book about Wright and the discovery that the two of them had this, you know, really quite marvelous push-pull relationship that lasted for some three decades that, you know, got me to really focus on Johnson, whose work I kind of knew vaguely. I mean, you pay attention to 20th century architecture, particularly at the end of the 20th century, and you really couldn't get away from Philip Johnson. He was the talking head, if you will, for, for American architecture, you know, circa 2000. And I knew the glass house and, you know, you couldn't be working in New York as I was in the 1980s and 90s and not be aware of the Chippendale skyscraper. And this man who, you know, talked architecture from the rooftops at every chance he got. And personally, were you more inclined to enjoy one architect's work over the other? Well, uh, you know, that's an interesting question because I guess as a student of 
antique architecture. You know, I've written a number of books about early American architecture and 19th century architecture. And therefore, I, I suppose I'm something of a classicist by inclination. You know, I like things that are symmetrical, and, uh, and I like things that we can tie back to Andrea Palladio and people like that. Um, in that sense, I guess I found some of what Johnson did very appealing, certainly intellectually. On the other hand, emotionally, you know, as uh, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright was something of a romantic and a man who had a connection with capital and nature, as he never tired of talking about, I think I felt a commonality with the way that Wright related to his site, the way that he, he put it, organic architecture, but the way he connected the natural world to his places. I think I found that also very charming. So I, I guess both of them have their somewhat distinct appeals with maybe surprisingly little overlap. Well, yeah, I bring it up because in the course of the book and in the style that it's written, which I think is really admirably accessible to really any audience, it's something that is written in such a way that brings in the narrative of the actual personal experiences of both of these people in a very relatable way, uh, while also connecting it to the overwhelming influence that both of these figures had on the entire extent of 20th century and ongoing architectural history. So to talk about one architect in particular, starting with Frank Lloyd Wright, who through the course of the book, there's a lot of kind of acceptances that Frank Lloyd Wright is the master here, that he's the one who is really going to have the long lasting uh, influence and kind of the universal genius, accepting of genius, as opposed to someone like Johnson, who had this more kind of, if he's referred to as um, as a dilettante in some senses, that he had this incredible influence, but something that might have been more about the zeitgeist than someone like Wright's work. So I wanted to ask you, for someone who comes across this book, perhaps with no no other knowledge of architectural history, what do you hope that they would get from this book? Well, I guess several things. One is, as you point out, uh, it, it is a narrative. It is a dual biography. And early in the process, there was a time when I thought this book should be titled The Master and the Maestro, because I think that Wright was indeed the master, right? Is the, you know, his genius, uh, his ever-changing style, his his great gifts for designing special and unusual and memorable buildings was ever so much greater than Johnson's. On the other hand, Johnson's not inconsiderable gift, thanks in part to his involvement at the Museum of Modern Art over the course of many years as a curator, thanks in part to the fact that he was a charming, witty, likable, independent man, thanks in part to his independent means. He really could be a kind of spokesperson for architecture and an advocate, not so much for his own work, although that was it, but for a whole coterie of architects in a variety of different emerging schools, you know, the postmodernist school and the deconstructivists and the others. He liked being in the big middle of things and fostering the conversation. So I'd, I'd like to think that people will come away from this with some respect and knowledge of what these two men and what their strengths were. But I think one other thing that is one of the principal joys for me in writing about architecture is that structure's interest. You know, I built a few houses as an amateur. I've designed a couple of houses and I kind of understand how they work. And, and I like to think that I can put some of that on paper. And there are, in this book, a number of different structures, four in particular, two by Wright, two by Johnson, one of them a collaboration with Mies van der Rohe, that I visit in great detail in the pages of the book. And I'd like to think that the readers will go there and come away with a better understanding of Falling Water, the Glass House, Wright's Guggenheim Museum, and the Mies van der Rohe-Johnson collaboration at the Seagram. The way that the two architects are represented in the book is a kind of 
a testament to an era of the architect that currently people are kind of trying to move away from. That it, A, it's this kind of like singular genius who has a means of working beyond their own like actual financial reality and can actually make things happen in a way that right now it seems a little bit more difficult to actually have that level of influence. And at the same time, it's actually not seen as so laudable for the architect to have this kind of king of the territory persona. So I'm wondering in the construction of the personality of the architect, how do you think that current readers reading about uh, Frank Lloyd Wright and Philip Johnson in this book might try to adapt what they see there in the current representation of, of the architect? Like, how would they take the celebrity as it's represented here and apply it to the current personality of the architect? I'm not sure that I entirely agree that contemporary architects are less ego-driven or more likely to, you know, subsume their vision in a kind of collective uh, way. In that, I think we see just a staggering number of buildings built today that are because I can buildings, buildings that are built, you know, that uh, uh, because architects think that uh, we have this new technology and we can do this and so we should use it. And some of these buildings are wonderfully successful and some of them aren't so much. But I think technology probably has more to do with the differentiation in practice in the 21st century from the 20th century than a change in the ego of architects. I, I, that would be my personal reading of this. Specifically in the book, it's referenced at a certain point in the early days or the early years of the relationship that Frank Lloyd Wright says to Philip Johnson that he has to choose between being this kind of academic intellectual influencer at, in the position of being a curator at the at MoMA and having this overarching academic view on the profession and actually being an architect, that he can't convincingly do both things. And that perspective today seems completely economically unfeasible in some ways, that you have to kind of be both a professional practitioner and have your foot in either academia or some other field that Philip Johnson was very influential in kind of creating the expectation for architects to be involved in that way of having, say, a, a critical text alongside their actual built work. But it, it does kind of complicate the kind of expectations of who an architect should be and just what jobs they should be doing. And then on top of that, what the architect celebrity is then, what does it take to be to get to the level of someone like Frank Lloyd Wright in this scenario? Well, I think you put, uh, put your finger on something very interesting here, which is that Wright, when he said that to Johnson, he was doing one of the things that he, Wright, did particularly well, which was say the outrageous thing, which was to draw attention to himself, which was to, you know, say the unexpected. And I think one of the appeals of this book, one of the reasons I wrote this book is that I discovered in my preliminary research before I got a contract, before I wrote a chunk of the book, that neither of these guys ever shut up. <laughs> I mean, they just talked all the time. They talked interestingly and provocatively and not always truthfully and sometimes for effect. And, and I have a feeling that this particular instance that you cite where Johnson says, where Wright says to Johnson, quit screwing around doing five things. You got to do one, my man, if you're going to be any good at it. I think he said that uh, that was born out of the dynamic of their relationship, which again was... You know, Walter Winchell coined the term frenemy at about uh, the time that these guys were really beginning to kind of get going as, as friends and enemies circa 1950. And I think the term frenemy describes their relationship very well because they had 
a creative bond. They had an antipathy personally and professionally, I think. They had this whole mix of feelings about one another, which um, led to them to some degree influence one another and certainly made the architectural dialogue of, of the time that they shared, most especially the 1950s, but also the 30s and 40s, ever so much more interesting. Considering how you might, or an academic might, critique either one of these architects' actual built structures after reading this book, do you think that having this kind of insight into their personal relationship would or should necessarily influence the interpretation of their built work? Well, I think that in both of these cases, these men, the work that they produced was very much a product of who they were. Uh, I think Wright in particular would tell you that you know, no one ever influenced him. He was his own man all the way, which is some some combination of useful half-truth and foolishness. But I think as a consequence of that, when you look at a right building, I think you have to see the man's shadow there. And you probably can. I mean, he was someone who went back to buildings sometimes decades after he designed them. And if he found that they'd rearranged the furniture, the owners of the house, he'd go in and rearrange it for them. So I think that it was, architecture was a deeply personal thing to him. In the case of Johnson, I think that is emotionally less true, but intellectually just as true. I think he was someone who, I think it was Vincent Scully, the great Yale scholar, who described Johnson as uh, working out of his intellectual attic. I think he used the term stored mind in reference to Johnson. Johnson was a student of architecture. He was, you know, very knowledgeable. He was, you know, trained as a classicist and a philosopher, and he brought ideas and an intellectual discipline to the process of thinking about buildings, which is one of the reasons so many of his buildings have very clear precedence. And I think that when you look at one of his classically inspired buildings, I think it is useful to know that he studied classics, that as a teenager, he burst into tears the first time he saw the Parthenon, that he had this kind of uh, deeply personal and intellectual connection with the history of architecture, which informed so much of what he did as an adult. In fact, he was uh, uh, completely confident, uh, confident enough in his skills and in his salesmanship that he was quite content to borrow buildings lock, stock, and barrel from the likes of Ledoux, the French neoclassicist, which he did for a law school down in Texas. So I think knowing who these guys were and how they felt about things and where they'd been and so forth in a way that maybe isn't quite so true with some other artists is in their cases. I love in particular this elbowing of Johnson by Wright, referring to him as a highbrow, also a, a man who is educated beyond his capacity. And I just think that there's so much in the kind of, if you want to create a kind of false binary, but nonetheless a binary, and how architects today can often fall on either side as being either the practitioner or the academic. Of course, that's far too simplistic, but oftentimes that those are kind of the ways in which your work might be interpreted as either you're of the practice of the moment of the practical, or you're of the academic speculative form-based kind of inquiry. And so for that relationship or that kind of basic binary to be represented between these two architects in a kind of light and in a way, provocative comment that, in fact, you can almost be like too much embroiled in academic work and instead should maybe go out and actually design something. I think it's just a fantastic comment and something that really brings out some of the humor also inherent to their relationship. 
Well, certainly Wright felt very much that way. You know, there's a there was an interview that is available on uh, on VCR that I came across in the process of doing my researches, where Mike Wallace, the late Mike Wallace of many years, sixty minutes, had his own television show in the 1950s, and he interviewed Wright at some length, and it's a very interesting interview. And at one point, Wallace asked Wright, "As an intellectual yourself, Mr. Wright, what do you think of?" And Wright interrupted him, full of seemingly false outrage, and said. I deny the allegation, and I refuse to marry that girl. I don't like intellectuals. And I think he didn't. I think he liked to talk in highfalutin terms. I think he liked to listen to his own philosophizing. But I don't think he was an intellectual in the same way that Johnson clearly was. So I think that that, that is one of the many dichotomies in their relationships, that, in their relationship that can inform our understanding. It also brings up the aftermath of Wright's influence on Johnson. So after Wright died, of course, Johnson had many years left. And there's some really interesting anecdotes brought up in the book of of how after Wright's death, Johnson might have shifted a little bit on his ideas about Wright's work or things that he had otherwise disagreed with about with Wright. Can you elaborate a little bit on kind of the ways that Johnson shifted after Wright's death? Well, in, in Wright's lifetime, Johnson, probably as early as 1932 or three, but certainly in a public way in the middle 1950s, dismissed Wright as, you know, the greatest architect of the 19th century. Now, when he said that at Harvard in 1955, there was a building emerging from the ground on Fifth Avenue in New York, which we now know as the Guggenheim Museum, which was very far from a 19th century structure. It's, you know, one of Wright's great epiphanies to not only build a building in the shape of a spiral, but to turn the wedding cake shape upside down. So uh, it was patently absurd for Johnson to say that, but Johnson... Johnson liked to utter clever things, and he liked to make people smile. And he was capable of something less than transparency, although he pretended to transparency, when he talked about a lot of things, including himself. I mean, he he, he joked at some point uh, before a room full of architects, I think, in Charlottesville, I am a whore, um, uh, but I make a lot of money designing uh, expensive commercial buildings. I think that as the years passed, particularly after Wright was dead, Johnson finally recognized that the specter of Wright's reputation, the quality of his work, the genius of the man was absolutely undeniable. And I think that was a process that probably began, if it can be identified as happening at one moment, probably when he went to the Johnson Wax Building immediately after he'd come out of the service. You know, Johnson served briefly in the service and was uh, released in 44 or 45. And he went out and he looked at the glass building with those marvelous, you know, mushroom towers and that extraordinary light coming through the ceiling. I think he realized upon seeing that and a few years later on seeing Taliesin West that Wright's genius was really in full blossom and he acknowledged that. And later in his life, after Wright's death, I think he found himself, because of his relationship with Wright, leveraging that relationship, leveraging his connection with the old master to his good advantage as he, again, as I said earlier, emerged as architecture's sort of primary spokesperson. Um, you know, there aren't so many architects that get the opportunity to go on Charlie Rose or get to be on the cover of, of Time magazine. And one of the things you do to get there is you use whatever ammunition you have to attract attention to yourself. And his relationship with Wright was clearly a piece of that. Well, it was great to talk with you. And thank you so much for 
shedding some more light on Architecture's Odd Couple. Well, this was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Archonnect Sessions one-to-one with Hugh Howard. Danilo Voinov edits the podcast, and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of One to One. New episodes come out every Monday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the podcast, please consider leaving us a review. We are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, and you can email us at connect at arcconnect.com. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>